I know I keep on coming back to this like model minority myth thing. Referencing Kant's categorical imperative. Which, if you haven't watched Buffy, well, first of all, what are you doing with your life? Which is about the housing crisis in San Francisco. I feel like that's worth talking about. Okay, welcome to Literary Connections, three friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected. Hi, I'm Melissa, one of the three friends. Um, I live in San Francisco, California, where the three of us originally met. And I'm really excited to discuss our first book because like the main character, I am biracial, but unlike the main character, I am definitely not magical. And I'm James Earl, a teacher in Milan, Italy, who's just trying not to pull from Malia these days. Okay, I'm super excited to discuss our very first book. Um, we will be discussing A Deadly Education, colon, The Scholomance Book Number 1 by Naomi Novik. Um, before we go into the summary of the book, um, and also James, you're going to need to correct me for a lot of the things that I misremember, um, we obviously don't believe in spoilers because we're trying to connect as most authentically as we can. So um, be warned, if you're going to read it and you care about spoilers, stop listening now and listen to our next podcast. So... At the top, we're introduced to our main character, Galadriel. I have feelings about that being her name, but that's fine. Um, and she is um, a half Indian, half Welsh wizard, I think is the term that they're using, um, who is going to an international magic school where there are different magical families, they're calling enclaves, that all go together to this school. And the reason that they all go to the school is because as kids grow up in the non-magical world there's these horrible mouths that are like demons that um basically want to eat these children but once they're grown-ups they don't want to eat them anymore and so they basically put all of the the food that the the mouths want to eat all of these children into one school away from any adults and then it's up to those kids in this magical school to teach themselves how to survive not being eaten so that they can make it to adulthood. The main character, Galadriel, doesn't have an enclave, so she doesn't have like any friends, and she doesn't have any alliances to figure out how she's going to be able to make it through this magical school. But of course, through the necessity of plot and romance, she starts making connections to her other students um, in order to help protect herself and the rest of them from these evil mouths. Is there anything that I missed, James? That feels like roughly what happened, right? Yes, and they need to, upon their senior year, upon graduation, they need to run out of the school past all of the mouths in order to join the world. It should also be noted that Galadriel is imbued with some sort of very powerful... She's a very powerful wizard, but she's unable to show it because she's constantly being saved by a classmate of hers named Orion Lake, who runs around saving everybody and never gives her the opportunity to show just how powerful she is. I mean, there's also like this element of she wants to show everyone how powerful she is, but at the same time she can't because literally her power is like submerging the world into darkness. It's like the opposite of the chosen one prophecy where it's like, you're going to save the world. There's actually a prophecy about her where it's like, you're going to destroy all the enclaves and all magical things that we know of. And so there's this real push-pull from her wanting to survive and her wanting to, like, not destroy all of the world. Right. Her, quote, affinity is for wildly destructive magic. All right. So this is very obviously an allegory. So let's, let's try to unpack what it's an allegory for. I mean, I feel like it's an allegory for, like, a bunch of things. Building on the summary we just talked about, there is this idea of being a chosen one and this coming of age story when you know 
that what you ultimately will be is a destroyer in some way. And I feel like every teenager kind of feels that way. And I think it's like a, it's like very much mimicking sort of like that experience of like being prevented from making connections because you think what makes you unique is what makes you dangerous and unlovable. And so I kind of like that like articulation of it. As well as I'm sure if I were an adult, if I could put all of the teenagers into one island and never talk to them until they all figure themselves out, that seems like it would be a nice thing to do. <laughs> That's interesting that you took it on like that it's an allegory of some individual behavior and like our individual psychologies. My first instinct for what this is an allegory for is the structural nature of the school being something that only exists because people believe in it. And this is an allegory for money or capital, our financial systems generally. This idea that like magic only exists if people believe in it, money only exists if people believe in it. The Scholomance is this persuadable space that only exists because everybody has access to the blueprints and so they can manifest it into existence and that's the structure of market economies or something. Oh yeah, and like definitely the idea of generational wealth as well and that, that sense of privilege, like it comes up constantly, right? It's like this weird balance of like, it feels like it's like 2014 woke in that sense a lot of the book feels very much that, that way especially with like talking about privilege and talking about how the richest enclaves have this generational wealth of magic that they literally hand off from generation to generation as they leave the school versus like the other people who do not have that and cannot draw on each other's magic and it it speaks to that privilege in itself is not absent relationships with other people it really is like a self-serving cycle of like a bunch of connected people who are invested in keeping it that way and don't realize how valuable those connections are and how other people don't have those things to quote unquote like pull them up by their bootstraps you're not doing it by yourself like you're doing it because you have these connections to other people who have connections to wealth Right, and you can be invited into these enclaves, which are probably have some sort of allegorical connection to the bourgeoisie, managerial class, aristocracy, whatever we want to call them. And you can get invited into those. And so there's this tokenism where people don't complain about the, these oppressive structures that have a noble class because there's the opportunity for them to join it through some sort of really destructive meritocracy. Oh yeah, it's a literal trial by fire. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, I think that's also interesting when you look at that like weird intersection with race, which again is this like weird 2014 element of like wokeness, but 2020 non-wokeness is there's like two sort of like different factions within the school. There's the English speakers and then there's the Mandarin speakers, which already is like we're setting up this very interesting, weird dichotomy and we only really associate with the English speakers. But that sort of like belief in the meritocracy is very much into the model minority myth. And so there is this element of like, yes, and the people that we are following who are trying to like find these allegiances are the main character is like half Indian and one of her best friends is Indian American. And like, where are we actually like building into sort of like these sorts of stereotypes, especially also in the end when they're like literally just getting cannon fodder for the final battle and they're just pulling in a bunch of Mandarin speakers who then proceed to die because they're trying to get into the best enclave possible. I was like, that's <laughs> a choice. Yeah, that was literally in the design of the school when the ruling class, the enclaves, decided to make the school in order to produce that kind of fodder so that they would make it out. 
But additionally, to add some complexity to, to that issue, I think that the system that the school represents is an allegory for industrial capitalism because she says a few times, like, well, before the school existed, 40% of people would die or whatever. It's, it's sort of like a reference to infant mortality rates before the Industrial Revolution or something like this. Like, industrial capitalism has improved these kinds of metrics across the board, but it's at the expense of these systems of oppression yeah. that are inside the book. And I think it, what's interesting about that industrial revolution angle and it, it is this idea, and I'm obsessed with this because of you know how we met, especially thinking about education and technology and the role of teachers and technology, is the industrial revolution, all of these systems, it's literally they've been put in place in the school. There are no teachers. And you literally cannot get out of this factory that has been built around you. And so what do you do when like those things that you've been put in place are literally like immovable and they're really reinforcing all of the sort of horrible inequities within the system that have been built in. Like basically there's a check at every level to make sure that the rich class is the one that's like always at the top. There's also the maintenance class, which we haven't talked about yet. Like everybody in the school is supposed to do some sort of duty to help maintain the school in this, you know, shared responsibility kind of way. But the people with privilege can pay or uh, persuade a maintenance class of students to do their work for them so that they can study harder, so that they have a better chance at survival. And that's clearly like a reference to those students who have access to SAT tutors and these kinds of things that the the students who need to work a second job to help their parents to put food on the table don't have that privilege. Totally. I mean, the real question, though, James, I mean, for you, is how do you feel about a school about teachers being a teacher? Right. And we both worked at a education technology company that was trying to offload a lot of teachers' work to technology. But, you know, it was very much not trying to make me obsolete, whereas this Scholomance has made me obsolete. One of the most interesting parts of this was when, near the end, she makes it clear that it doesn't matter whether or not she does her own work the school doesn't know. And it's like, almost seems like it's some sort of AI that grades their paper where it's unable to tell whether or not she's producing it or her friend and the school doesn't actually care so long as it gets handed in. So there's no individual accountability without the teachers. So it exists without parents, but it's not like the Scholomance is a virtuous institution. It's not like it's going well. Yeah, and I feel like it's, well, first of all, James, no one can make you obsolete. <laughs> and I think it is like also, I know I keep on coming back to this like model minority myth thing, but it's very interesting because like the 2020 idea of what education is, it's that really whole child education approach is like all of these different levers that you need to be pulling, socio-emotional, health, as well as academics. And this is very much as like putting kids into a situation where it's just academics and to like the detriment of like them being whole human beings. And like actually to a certain extent, like you are choosing to torture all of these students, these children, because they are, they would put the adults in danger to a certain extent by being near them. Right. So in in a lot of ways, it's a response to the Lord of the Flies. And she even says somewhere near the end of the book that the Lord of the Flies got it wrong. If you put a bunch of kids together, they don't end up just killing each other. They form these alliances and they act out of self-interest and survival. And so they won't do anything that's actively going to make it so it's impossible for them to survive and start these wars And so, you know, the Lord of the Flies is built on this Hobbesian philosophy of humanity that lives are 
short, brutish, and nasty. Nasty, yeah. And that, you know, everybody's just going to be self interested and there needs to be an adult in the room. Like for Hobbes, that was the king. For Lord of the Rings, it was a, uh, for Lord of the Flies, it was a literal, <laughs> I... <laughs> a literal adult in the room in order to prevent this from happening. Sorry, Galadriel. No, no, no I understand. Yeah. <laughs> And I think this book is trying to have more of a Rousseau, like how do we interact with each other kind of philosophy of humanity. But also there's this, um, like the, the difference between Malia and Mana, like where they pull their magic from. There's something in that that I feel like is referencing Kant's categorical imperative where you can't treat people like they're a means to an end. And so like those who do are the the ones who pull from Malia. Oh, Maleficers. Maleficers, yeah. So they're the ones who, who treat other people as a means to their own ends. Like literally their end. They're like literally like a Dorian Gray like messes. Sorry, I, I lost the thread about the Kant thing. The Kant thing is just the like that you can reason yourself to morality. And I think it's a second categorical imperative is that you can't treat another human as though they don't have intrinsic value. Like nobody is a means to their own end. I mean, this brings us to one of the other major themes of this book is about how you find your community. And for Kant, you can't treat somebody as though they don't have their own intrinsic value. And I think that Galadriel's journey here is trying to find people who find her intrinsically valuable because of who she is, not because of who her mother is or anything yeah. like this. Yeah, the thing I keep on thinking about with Galadriel and like this whole like Molly and Mana, white, dark, good side, light side, is like I keep on thinking of Willow from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> looking into like season six and then season seven. If you haven't watched Buffy, well, first of all, what are you doing with your life? But in season six, basically Willow, she's been like training to be a witch the entire series. And then she, um, this horrible guy like kills her girlfriend and Willow goes like straight up bonkers evil. Hair turns black, eyes turn black, everything's black. It's a very literal metaphor. And she's like trying to literally end the world, which like very much resonates with like Galadriel's affinity for like, I'm going to destroy everything. And the thing that saves Willow is literally her connection to other people. Like literally her childhood best friend pulls her literally off a ledge and basically just says, I love you and I care about you and this sucks. And like, there is something after this, even though you've lost this big thing because there's still a giant community around you and she like chills out, but it's still like very worried that like her affinity will like negatively impact the world. And then at the end of season seven, she actually uses her power for good. And guess what? Her hair turns white, everything turns white. She like becomes a goddess. And it's literally the inversion of that, which is based on sort of like that sense of community that she was able to build with the rest of the Scooby Slayer squad. And so I feel like I'm hopeful that in the journey that we saw with Gladriel, we'll see like a similar journey in that connection to other people is like, you can turn the things about you that feel hard or difficult or dangerous and actually use them for a greater good, which if I'm going to be like candid where I think the next book is going, it's like basically the prophecy is like she's going to destroy all enclaves, which I think is basically like she's going to destroy capitalism. <laughs> so like I'm not opposed. Destroy the bourgeoisie. Yeah. Right. So on the topic of communities and how communities are built in this book, there's the way that Galadriel does it, which is she finds her people who she genuinely appreciates as people and wants to be there for. And then there are the people who are just part of enclaves. Like, for example, Orion Lakes, his, his enclave doesn't know much about him like they're not doing this because they like him as a human they're doing this because 
he's just part of their community. His mother is mayor of an enclave or something. And so there's this class loyalty that they have that doesn't exist for Galadriel and some of the unaffiliated people in the school. So I want to ask you about how you felt about the major organizing feature of the school, which isn't enclaves, but like the superstructure above that is languages. I think it's been a really interesting choice to really focus on like this international wizard school where like everything is sort of like based in different languages and your proficiency in different languages and how that makes you able to connect with magic and connect with your peers. So basically with the, the whole school being set up as like either you're a Mandarin speaker or an English speaker, and then there are lots of sub-languages you can learn that will basically broaden your magic. I think what I struggle with here is I think it is true there whenever you're like, oh, like the Germans have a word for everything. Like there is an element of like, it would make sense that language would be powerful in a unique way to conjure different feelings, emotions, the ability to like do something because language is powerful. Language does shape our reality. It's like true. And I also feel like she tries to like do this in a like really unique way at the very end of the book where they're all going against all of the different mal demons. And the thing that saves them is a half English, half Spanish community spell that they're like singing all together. I'm like, okay, I understand. This is like very, again, like this 2014 American multiculturalism sort of ideal. And I see where you're going for this. I'm this being like a positive thing without understanding where it is inadvertently racist to like basically split up the school into like these two divisions of Mandarin and English speakers. And then we only focus on the English speakers for the entire time. And there is a thing of like, oh, well, one of her best friends is actually a Mandarin speaker, but she's taking her all of her classes in English in order to like save her language requirement. It makes it implicit that you're valuing being taught in English, that when you're saying only people speak in English the entire time, that I think is very awkward. And that the only time we ever see the Mandarin speakers again is at the very end when they're used as literal cannon fodder. After being set up at the very beginning when they're like, oh, the Mandarin speakers have so much power that we are even considering moving the school. And then you see like nothing about that moving forward. So I think it's just like, it's like a very weird setup. There's a Lord of the Rings, we men of the West are going to be the ones who save the world. Yeah, but we're all going to do it together with our Spanish spell from like also the Spanish student who built the spell. She's not part of an enclave. She came from the bottom. No one knew. It felt very like American multiculturalism. I don't know. I think the language thing... I almost somewhat give a pass to. I think it's like, I think it's a, it's a little bit sloppy, but I think what's like more sloppy is like, there's a lack of culture in the book. It very much for, I mean, I, I think the, the author um, is an American, but the main character is supposed to be like half Welsh, half Indian from India. Although like, obviously like without being raised with her father and only knowing her, her Indian family for a very short period of time, like that part of her identity is like not fully fleshed out or built. Um, in herself or that confidence in what that identity means. But I think what I really liked about like a lot of the the media that we've been seeing like recently, um, where especially like I think about like Asian protagonists and people who like look like me, experience things like me, there's like always a weird delight when you like talk to someone else. And you're like, oh my gosh, we watched Always Be My Maybe and they took off their shoes before they went into a house. I mean, to me, this feels like an obvious thing that everyone should do <laughs> regardless of what your cultural background is. But there's like an element of like specificity that like is like, what is culture? What does that mean? How does that connect people? How does it surprise people? And I think that in this focus on capitalism and privilege and class, race has become like window dressing 
and the window dressing is if everyone gets along we all just like learn each other's languages and we build like this beautiful thing together versus like it just keep on coming back to the fact that if i were half indian half welsh and one of my best friends was also indian we would talk about it like even even if like and me being raised in a mostly white environment but being half chinese like whenever i met like a chinese person who i would always feel like very uncomfortable in my chinese identity like am i chinese enough to have this conversation but there still would be that sort of dialogue in your head and the lack of specificity just feels like a really off choice where you're just like trying to get brownie points for like mentioning different cultures and like she wrote the entire book as like white people speaking like different white languages or european or like like anglo-saxon languages um germanic languages and then just like changed everybody's like race at the end i i think similar to you i don't have a problem with her using language as a organizing superstructure because there is just a reality to that. If you put a bunch of 15 year olds in a school, the students who speak Portuguese are going to be drawn to each other. And so there's there's gonna be these these communities that, that pop up. But I, I do agree that it was it was remarkable how there was a lack of culture that she talks about how there's a group of Arab students, but there's no there's no culture associated with them. It's like exclusively through their language that they are identified. Oh, totally. And the, the types of spells that they're able to produce because they can speak Arabic. Um, also, to be spell choked, I think, is an interesting thing, and I'm not quite sure what it means. So to be spell choked is when you get a bunch of spells in a language you can't speak, and the school only gives you spells in that language until you master them, and so you end up not being able to learn new ones. This sounds like a reason we need teachers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I. All right. That's that's great. Yes. Right. If if the algorithm just starts giving you things that you that you can't handle, you end up falling behind in school and not being able to like the idea that you can't move on beyond something until you've mastered that thing and having a teacher there that will do that. So I'm reminded I'm reminded of how when our producer is teaching herself how to learn guitar every time she does a course, she gets stuck on the F chord and can't move on beyond it. And so the programs won't let her move on until she learns the F chord. And this is like an algorithmic problem with these these courses that need her to be able to strum that chord. Right, I think that the, speaking of like mastery-based education, like I think we struggle with this and like what does it mean to be successful in like a modern way as an adult? Like ultimately, like right, you want like the power and the agency in order to like live a fulfilling life. Does it matter if our producer can do an F chord. I think when we like stick onto like, what is it that we need to master in order to be able to graduate and to move forward is like a very like sort of sensitive question that is like very much tied to like class, race, country. Affinity. Affinity. Like uh, Elle's affinity, which she can't ever demonstrate to anybody, is probably an allegory for those skills that are just not beneficial in school, that just like won't help you academically. And so you never get the opportunity to show them off. And then nobody knows you have them and they end up just getting lost and you become unaffiliated with any sort of community or business or whatever. Or it's like one of those things where it's like if this was a movie, like she gets picked up by the FBI and then is used as like a super secret resource or something. Oh yeah, and to build upon what you were saying about how different languages have different powers, it reminded me of the Saper-Whorf hypothesis and linguistic determinism, 
in that when certain languages have words for things, those things can be discussed and they become part of the culture. They change the way that your brain thinks about things. Like uh, the classic examples are how Koreans change the, the, the form of their nouns based on whether or not the person they're speaking to is older than them or younger than them. And so there's a focus on age that there just isn't in other languages. Or how in Turkish there's a gossip tense where you change the tense based on whether or not it's first-hand knowledge or second-hand knowledge. So there's this innate, they don't even think about it, whether or not they got the the knowledge that they have firsthand or secondhand. I'm obsessed with that. I definitely need a gossip tense in my own life. How do we get that for English? No, it's totally real. Like I, in like the child, re the child development research that I did in undergrad, especially with Korean, there's also this thing around like tight fit versus loose fit. So instead of just having like an in or an on, they actually like have extra language to describe whether or not it is like a, a tight fit inside another item or a loose fit. And you can actually see differences in how infants respond and categorize different fits because of literally just the language they're hearing. Because English like hearing infants like literally don't care. They're just like, oh, in. And Korean infants are like, ah, in tight fit, in loose fit. It totally like makes your your entire worldview different. And so like having that link up is totally powerful. So it makes sense that the that there would be different spells in different languages and that they would have different focuses. So I feel like all that made sense to me. But the like there's also an implication on culture when you have that and that that as we said is void in the book. And speaking of culture that is ignored, there's also the controversy around the author's explanation of why everybody has a similar short haircut. Cuz the first thing that I had noticed was right that her friend had like the very long hair and that was like a very much a sign of like your power that you are able to have very long hair and so it was very interesting for me to then go on to Goodreads and realize this was actually like a much bigger theme and actually like a lot more dramatic than I realized because she originally had talked about why students didn't have dreadlocks. Uh, so to quickly explain the dreadlock episode, because it was in the version of the book that I read, it's described that a character has dreadlocks and that the reason that nobody has long hair is because the Maleficaria can crawl up long hair and lay eggs in the person's head and then they'll crawl into their brain and mess with them or something. Um, and for some reason, the author chose to explain this using a traditionally black hairstyle rather than any other form of long hair. And... I didn't know about that because it literally wasn't in my version of the text, which I think is like a very interesting choice to me and something that I feel a little bit uncomfortable about. I think that there's like a value in having like digital version of the text that you can update, especially for like things that are nonfiction where you don't want like inaccurate information out there. But there's something about being able to like edit a text and edit out your racism or like your incomplete thoughts or interpretations of a situation as if they never existed. And I feel like it actually like decreases the amount of dialogue you can have about it by doing so. But, but I, think it's a, I think it's a hard choice. Like I, I've been thinking a lot about like how that's been happening a lot with like different comedies and blackface where I feel like the 30 Rock episodes that they're cutting make complete sense to me. Like they are very much feeling within that narrative of like minstrel, of like appropriation and poking fun. But then I think about some of the examples on Scrubs where it's a very diverse cast and it's literally a black man and a white man and how they sort of like view their friendship and relate to each other. It's not the comedy that we would have now, but there's something interesting about capturing that sort of friendship moment in its sort of like amber icebox of then. Having that moment 
that you can reflect on, like not burying our past as though it doesn't exist, but have it there as something to respond to. You know, it's a lot about what this podcast is about. Like we're using these books as a platform to discuss bigger ideas. And I'm grateful, regardless of, you know, the, the book's issues, I'm grateful to have the artifact to have these discussions around thinking about these things in terms of a process and being able to reflect on that process to see how we've come to places. The problem with the, the dreadlock episode in this was that she chose to focus on a hairstyle associated with black people rather than than some other hairstyle associated with a culture possibly with less of a history of oppression. Oh, totally. And like the person who she like positively like associates with her long hair is an Asian girl, which is like long, straight, very not controversial hair that people are punished for. I also, because this is a YA book, there are some really good moments in there where I think it, it explains really complex situations that I wouldn't have had a platform to discuss when I was 15. And it does it really well. Like for example, when Orion asks Galadriel how often she gets attacked and she says like, you know, four or five times a week or something like that. And he's like, no, that's just not true. Like I get an alert anytime somebody from the New York Enclave is attacked and it's not nearly with that kind of frequency. And she's like, yeah, because they're all in an Enclave. And so he, his inability to recognize his own privilege because of the bubble he's in is a really interesting and, and really well executed part of this book, I think. Oh, I 100% agree. I think that privilege and capitalism and sort of like that relationship the characters have to each other, I think is very well developed. And it was one of those things where I was like, as a person in my 30s, I'm like, this is a little bit too on the nose. But as someone who was like a teenager, I would not have seen it. And like, I would have been like, oh my God, you just blew my brain. Like what? And it really would have helped me like analyze my own privilege by having a book like this. And to seriously, I'm like, did she bite off too much that she could chew by like trying to add capitalism and the problems of privilege and capitalism on top of trying to like make everything like an international? I think that she has the language and the capacity to talk very intelligently about classism but she doesn't about race. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, we have to say a book can't be about everything. So she made some sacrifices in some areas in order to have these conversations about privilege and education and equality and so on. Yeah, and I think I, I struggle with this too, because I mean, looking up her bio being like a white Jewish author, I don't want to say that like authors can't write from perspectives that are not their lived experience. I think that that's like very limiting. And I think that also like starts reinforcing this idea of already the authors we all know are generally white and generally white and male. And then those are the people who are going to continually being published on their own perspectives. It's just gonna be like Jonathan Franzen over and over and over again. But I think that there's an element of like, how do you responsibly bring in other perspectives, other cultures without it just feeling like you've painted a color onto them. Right, there wasn't a lot of empathy or, or an attempt to understand a different culture. It was, it was a little superficial there. So uh, one other thing I want to talk about is if, if all of these things have some sort of allegorical associations, what are the Maleficaria? Like I got, I got some rapey vibes from the, the big ones that, that sit at the gates. They were called like patience and fortitude, yeah. but they are with, called... With the, with, the, with the tentacles. Right. Maw mouth. Ah! In particular, there's a scene when Galadriel fights a maw mouth, which is something that even the, the toughest wizards can't defeat, but she somehow goes into it and, and destroys it. And the imagery that the author was using was very much the imagery of sexual abuse, the thing trying to claw its way inside her and so on. 
I think what especially was interesting to me about that scene, and I, like, again, like, agree with how the language was being used, but was also that scene was when Orion was, like, defending all the rest of the students in the library completely separately. And how it was this idea, like, she was by herself against, like, literally a serial predator. And it was, like, up to her to, like, do I go up against this, like, serial predator in order to, like, protect the younger children here at the school. And I do think that speaks to sort of, like, a choice that, like, women versus men have to make or how they are treated or viewed or that sort of, like, piece of, like, emotional labor, putting yourself in that line of fire as a woman where it's, like, yes, there's this guy, Orion, he's getting all the glory for saving all the other students. And Elle is doing this completely unseen act that, like, literally is going to terrorize her until the end of her life in order to, like, make sure that, like, other people are okay. Um, and there's so many instances of that, like, right, like, women going through sort of, like, assault or abuse in order to, like, not rock the boat. It's like, you're never going to talk about it. And you're going to let the male narrative take precedence over what happened in that history. Right. And that builds on a lot of the other times in the novel when... Orion is getting implicit credit for things that Galadriel has done. Like, she makes the mirror really smooth in that one scene, but people just assume, without even saying it out loud, they just assume that Orion is the one who did it. I mean, I also want to add one more thing about why I think Galadriel is a really interesting character, because she does make that sacrifice. And also, we've talked a little bit about tokenism, and she, when she gets the opportunity to join a New York enclave, like that idea of somebody who the power structures leave out, then being able to tap into those systems of power, for them to then deny them is very rare. Like, that that's an act of heroism for them to say, nope, th these systems of power are still really abusive and they're hurting my community and people like me, and so I'm not gonna play that game, even though they've tapped into that power and like could have this enclave and like become part of the managerial class or whatever. I really thought it was interesting yeah, how in the end it was like literally like, okay, so the beauty of like the whole magic school behind them, all the magic running through their own magic against all of the, the evil mouths like that they were encountering in the graduation room, but what I thought was interesting about her having the power from the New York Enclave and then denying that power long term, it reminded me to like a lot of conversations that we've had about like, do you lean in or lean out? To bring back like, that Sheryl Sandberg, early 2000s wokeness of there's a question of like, do you work through the system? Do you gain power slowly through a system in order to liberate the people below you who are like you, who do not get that opportunity? Or is it important that you don't settle, you don't assimilate? and you create your own path that is, has more integrity. And I think that there is this element of like, we're over leaning in and we are now leaning out. And I think it's a really clear example of like, we can lean out and we can also still liberate the people who are like us. I mean, okay, so we haven't talked about Orion yet, really in depth. What are your thoughts on Orion Lake? I think that he's interesting because he is somebody with all of the privilege. I mean, he's the equivalent of like the star quarterback. So he's got this like whatever the magic equivalent is of, of some sort of athletic privilege. He's got academic privilege where even if he's not the best artificer or whatever his track is, his affinity is something that allows him to have a lot of success and a lot of popularity within the school. So he's got all that privilege. He's got enclave or class privilege. He's got family privilege where his parents have political power. So like literally all of the boxes that one could check for privilege he has. And yet he does seem to be genuinely uninterested in taking advantage of it though those things are still a part of his life and he does get the advantages of it without him even trying. Like, you get the sense that he authentically doesn't try to tap into those, to that privilege, 
and yet it follows him around. One thing that always like resonates with me, or like it just is crazy with me with Orion, is when um, Elle has explained to him what maintenance shifts are. Yeah. Like he's like he's like I have no idea what you're talking about, right. and she's like literally that means that someone from your enclave has been assigning out your shifts, and he's like what are you talking about? Right, and so there, there's something really interesting there. I get the sense his intentions are genuine. Like, for example, she does that spell at some point where she makes everybody their true selves. It's a spell that her mother taught her, and she does it with so much power that everybody around her in her immediate vicinity becomes their true selves. And all of them take a gasp because they're changing in some way. Like, all of them had some sort of facade on, and Orion is the only one who doesn't. So there is something really genuine about him where he's just like, what's, what's happening with everybody? Why is everybody freaking out about this spell? But that is, is that like a sad thing that like the only way that you can be genuine and authentic and like truly good, I mean, we can argue what the ending of the book says about Orion, but like you can only be that way if literally people are giving you so much privilege that you don't even, you can't even think about it. Like that basically people have done all the emotional labor and physical labor underneath you that you are able to pontificate and defend and be a white knight without thinking about it. Right, all those structures prop him up so that he can be that defender of everybody else. Yeah, I think it gives you a belief in the system that like it works and people can just pull themselves up or like, again, like you were talking about like, oh, no one gets attacked. My experience says that like it doesn't happen and you just literally don't have enough exposure to like understand different viewpoints. There is notably one structural belief that everybody else buys into except for Orion Lake and that's the principle of balance where everybody believes that he's shifting the balance because mouths will exist and they are seeking out a balance and the more he kills the more that they're going to kill the children and he comes from this place of like no everybody should have the privilege to make it through this alive and i'm going to do that i'm not going to apologize for trying to help everybody else and he's like the only one who holds that belief in the in the book right but I think there is that like question of when the valedictorian talks to Orion and is like, you're going to result in more deaths because of what you do. You've like angered them. There's going to be more of them that are going to come. And so in fact, what you've done in trying to be good is actually done something that's bad. It's a complicated thing because I think back to like nice white parents. There are so many instances of people with privilege who have a clear idea of like, this is how we'll make everything better for everyone, where they're mostly using their own lived experience to make that decision. And then actually they're having a larger impact on the bigger system than they see and that they will never have exposure to. That is also like literal, like a white knight scenario that has like broader implications than he is willing to see. Yeah. And it, it comes out to like whether or not this capitalist structure that the book is an allegory for is actually a zero sum game. And Orion seems to think, like, we can raise the water line for everybody. Like, all boats can rise. I will be the one to raise them. And, yeah, it does seem like the book is pushing back against that and saying, no, it, it is a zero. Like, there is going to be a balance. There is, this is, the structure is a zero-sum game. So do you think that he's evil? This is, of course, the question at, at the very the end of the book. Yeah, when she like, gets the warning from her mom, like, watch out for Orion Lake, that dude that I don't know that you've made out with. Right, and I think that what we've just been discussing might be at the core of this is, is his belief that the industrial capitalism is not a zero-sum game. Like, if she signs on to that, and if she helps him in his project to prove that, she has the power to do some real damage, possibly. I don't know. And perhaps the mother understands that in a deeper way than us. I don't know. I've, I went back and forth thinking about if this is some sort of reader entrapment. And though the mother seems saintly, that perhaps she's not. 
No, I think I think the mom is pure. I feel like if there's one thing that we can count on is her mom is like a generous, beautiful spirit of like motherly love. And like, I think there is that like one constant of like that, that one adult that like at least she has that is reliable and like has that like gives away spells for free and like real burning man approach to life that her mom has. I think that's genuine. I think where I'm wondering where Orion might be someone you would warn against is I do think it's interesting how much of his power and magic he gets from just like constantly fighting all of these mouths. And it's like a weird fixation where I'm like, why do you have this like unique ability to fight them more than anyone else has, like even from his early childhood? And what does it say that like, this is the way that you're consuming power for yourself in the way that you don't even need to rely on the rest of your enclave? Right. And he's not doing it for the genuflection or anything like this. It's like an obsession with the destroying of these things. So for me, the, the Maleficaria, I just finished listening to the 99% Invisible series on According to Need, which is about the housing crisis in San Francisco. And one of the things that they talk about is this concept of vulnerabilities that a person gets housing based on a number of vulnerabilities they have. And so like vulnerabilities are whether or not they've had prison in their past, whether or not they're disabled, addiction, like all of these things count as, as vulnerabilities. And so for me, the Maleficaria are these literal vulnerabilities that attack people and like will cause disability or, or you know, any number of things. So I, I don't know, like if I, if I hold that as a belief that that's the allegory, what is there actually wrong about having an obsession with ending these vulnerabilities for people? Well, I think it's like, right, like it's, it's, is he fighting a losing battle towards like the entropic nature of society towards everyone is trash um, and people will ultimately be self-serving, right? Like even the things where at the very end, it was like unclear if you were going to get like the entire magic school on the same page. And the only way you were able to get people to join in the fight was from their own self-interest. Yeah, that's true. And so to what extent does Orion like prop up the system? Because in a lot of ways, he is trying to get everybody through. Like, he buys in right away when they have the plan to all link together their spells. And, I mean, he wants to go it alone, and he wants this, like, rugged individualism. But it's not like he protests so much that he doesn't end up being a part of this community that then tries to, each according to their abilities, goes in and does what they do best to end inequality and get everybody out alive and into the world, ready to be productive members of whatever the system is out there. Right, and like Orion is like the prime example of like he embodies what it means to be in an enclave, to be in the system. His mother is like a leader of the system. We do need to probably question how much knowledge the mother has of the individual Orion Lake, but the fact that she called it out directly, like. Wouldn't it be more likely for her to say, hey, stay away from the New York enclave. Like, that's a really caustic system or it's a, it's a caustic community. You don't want to be a part of it. She doesn't say that. She says stay away from Orion Lake. Yeah, and I'm wondering like, how much knowledge she has about him. Because I think what's interesting is both of them have affinities. Both of them have been called out by people around them as having a unique ability that other people don't have. And so there probably is something unique about him and his childhood or like his genetic line or something that we like just don't have access to that like does motivate him or that does drive him that we will eventually learn in the second book that his her mother might be aware of. Right, perhaps there's a prophecy about him as well <gasps> that we don't know about in the same way that nobody in the school knows about the prophecy related to Galadriel. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think we've talked this book to death now that there's 
I ever get tired of talking about books with you, James. But I'm really curious, where do you think the next book is going? I mean, I think we need to think about the themes and how these themes are going to wrap up. So if this is going to be some playbook for the end of industrial capitalism, it's going to have to be the destruction of the Scalamance, the systems represented by the Scalamance, or like some totally renovated version of the Scalamance to, to help children understand how to live in the world. So that's going to need to happen. I have thought a lot about the Orion Lake thing, and I, I do not know where this is going. I'll say that I think there's going to be some sort of twist with who the father is. Like, I think we know, we know very little about the father and his family, but what we do know is really intriguing. Like, I think we've been given crumbs and that there's, that there's something there. What are your thoughts about the ending? So I do think the whole, like, be afraid of Orion thing is definitely, like, a red herring. I feel like this is a YA book. I don't think that really this author is trying to, like, dismiss all the tropes or turn them all in their head. I think, like, very much he's still going to be the romantic interest. I think they end up together. Or if they don't end up together, there's going to be a very dramatic sacrifice. So I, I ultimately think that like, there's going to be, like, something we learn about him that, like, puts doubt into her mind. But ultimately, like, they make it to the end together. But again, like, I could see a sacrifice in the future given that's, like, how she was basically born. Her mother made it through the graduation room because her father sacrificed himself for her. And so I'm interested to see if there's going to be, like, a callback to that and sort of would it be like a, an echo where it's the same or is it like we're going to like get it through together and like that's actually going to be like the the victory march. I mean I think for me like the most obvious thing is like they're going to get rid of enclaves. Like that's what her, her prophecy said. There was like all this obsession in the spell book that she got that was like oh like the power to create enclaves and like how to do that via magic has been like lost to the ages and like now she has this spell. I just feel like there's going to be something there where it is like breaking up these like systems of power. I think the one thing that I, I'm struggling with to like really break up these systems of power and the Scalamans is we have we're in the system where kids literally attract demons that want to eat them. <laughs> and like how do you like get out of that not to be like oh yeah like orion like it's nice that you're trying but like it's impossible but i am curious like what is the system that we can put in place that like makes that less dangerous and better allows a secure attachment that you have to the rest of society right uh, i like what you said about the the amount of attention the author put on the spell to be able to create enclaves in the original way and I thought that whole description was evoking the early Ummahs of, of Islam, like the original Ummah of, you know, Muhammad's community that he built. And the idea that, like, this was a community built on charity and so on. So, yeah, and especially with the mother being so affiliated with charity that perhaps there's some recreation of the Ummah in the next book. And I also like what you're saying about the possibility of Orion being sacrificed in the end because it would make sense allegorically for this symbol of all of the privileges to need to be sacrificed in order for this new Uma to be born. I'm really glad that the next book is coming out soon. I think that we did a good thing by reading this very close to when the next book comes out so we don't have to wait to figure out what happens next. Speaking of that, what book should we read next? What's the one that everyone is reading right now? Ray Bearer? I don't know this, but let's read it. And it's another book one. Okay, let's read Ray Bearer next. Well, thank you for listening to the very first Literary Connections podcast. We hope to connect with you again in the future for our future episodes. Literary Connections is brought to you by three friends who live across the world 
and want to talk about books. And so you've met me and James, but we are also produced by our friend Kimberly. And we're really, really excited to bring even more of these episodes to you in the future. All right, Melissa. See you next time. See ya. Bye. And then the producer's like, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, ha, ha, ha. I want to call it the manticores, but they're not manticores. This is good. Now we're knowing that we're like understanding <laughs> the things that we need to have prepped before. <laughs> Kimberly, just say your thoughts out loud. I don't think I should be in this podcast. Yeah. All right. All right, Melissa. See you next week. Week. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Next I'm sorry. Week. Okay. Yeah. All right, Melissa. See you next time.